Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. We're so glad that you're here. As always, I am your host, Lauren Ash, and as always, I am joined by my co-host S with the most S, Christy Oxborough. How you feeling? You know, for once, I'm going to say good. Hey! <laughs> Something new. Something new. Something new, indeedly. Yeah. Indeedly? Yeah. Oh, boy. <laughs> right out the gate. Out the gate. Look, yeah. uh, dear listeners, last week, we were both in the thick of it. Since yes. then, we have both been taken down by illnesses. <laughs> it's yeah. like, you know how if a couple gals are living together, their their uh, menstrual cycles kind of will uh, sync up? For some reason, even from afar, our illnesses synced up. And yeah. uh, we've both just been going through it. But we're on the not other COVID. side of it. Not COVID. No. Um, not COVID. Uh, trust me, I'm working on a show right now, and so I'm tested constantly. Right. Uh, but... Yeah, we're on the other side of it now. We're on. We can see the light, which which is nice because it. I mean, it feels so silly to say it, but I'm going to say it. It's been harrowing. Yeah, it's been it's been chilling. Yeah, I mean, sure, there was a day last week that normally would have been like a research day for me, where uh, I I just could not physically get out of bed. Like I got out of bed at first children out the door to school and then I, I walked past my husband and said I just need to lie down just yeah. for like just a little bit and he was like of course yeah go and uh, I stayed there for the next 40 some hours oh <laughs> it, it was bad I could barely keep my eyes open I'd nod off and then I'd wake up and then it was just too hot or it was too cold it was never a nice temperature and I was out of it and you know what's ironic is my symptoms were the same. So it's almost as though yeah. we, from thousands of miles apart, 
We were yeah. going through the same thing. And what I have to say is for me, I, um, I'm i lucky because I don't have small humans to tend to. I do have to take care of the animals, sure. but that's a little bit less uh, involved. Uh, I was like, I just was sleeping as much as possible. Same thing. Hot, sure. hot sweats, cold sweats, um, shivers, yeah. chills, uh, vertigo, uh, dizziness, all of the Yes. And, uh, but I had something happen. I had something happen that I'd like to share with everybody. And this is news for, for Christy too. So, yeah. So as I am wont to do, my favorite show is TikTok. I like of to course. I like to have it on while I'm brushing my teeth. It it's got I've got a little shelf in my my bathroom and I I, yeah. I brush and I flip and I brush and I flip. Like I <laughs> I I don't care if you judge me. I've got the ADHD. I like I need I need constant stimulation. So it is what it is. Um yeah. but And who you hurting? Nobody. Nobody. Nobody's business uh, but my nope. own and uh, everyone else's cuz I'm sharing it. But the point is, so <coughs> so I, during my illness, I would wake up in bed again in like cold sweats, hot sweats, etc. And instead of wanting to try and find the remote to put on the TV, I would just pick up my phone and I'd scroll through TikTok until I'd fall again into another sure. fever dream. So it should be noted, I'm not in my right mind. I've also, I've got cold meds. I've got pulsing through my system. And these, this, I should say that these are the times that I should have my credit cards taken away. But... But they're all linked. I was going through my PayPal, so it wouldn't have mattered. And I know what you're thinking. I guess maybe take your phone away, but then that's cruel. I don't know. There should be a there should be a button we should be able to press where if it's like you've been drinking or you're on medication or you're ill and you can just push it and it's like, nope, nope. It's the nope, nope button. <laughs> it's just like it doesn't let you make purchases. That should you be You need a, a breathalyzer phone. <laughs> <laughs> I need a breathalyzer on my phone. Yeah. Uh, so that I can, if I pass it, then, then okay. But you know, because yeah. I, and look, look, if you said to me, Lauren Ash, get us to the place on TikTok, get us to the account that you found somehow that came up on your feed that mm -hmm. led you to what you bought, gun to my head, I'd say, pull the trigger because I don't know. I have no clue how I got to what I got to. I don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Long story short, wait. too late. Somehow I managed to exchange currency. Money that I money that I've worked hard for. <laughs> to someone called Psychic Rose. Oh. To draw okay. me a sketch of my twin flame. <laughs> <laughs> sure. So basically, um, I, I I got, I don't know how I got reeled in. I think, honestly, in the moment, I thought, this will be a funny story for the podcast. I honestly think in my sick brain, sure. like, that's what I thought. Like, I was like, the people will love this. This is a, this will be a romp. What if it ends up looking like Chris Evans or something, right? Like, it was like, these sure. are the thoughts that I, I'm guessing went through my mind. Because, again, I was not in my right state of mind. But anyway, 20 bones, 20 bucks. Oh, that's so not listen, bad. Not the worst. Not the worst. But basically, I mean, they really, I can read you some of what was in the follow-up email. Uh, I can read you some of this. It's like, <laughs> I mean, how do you know the one you're dating is the one the universe wants you to be with? Or maybe you're trying to find the right one to date. Making the wrong decision when picking your partner can make your life a living hell. 
Wow. Oh. Coming in hot, Rose. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it gets worse. Abuse, toxic relationships, lying, cheating, divorce. These are just the top of the list of dire consequences one faces for making a bad choice. But if you make the right choice, if you find your soul's twin flame, that is a truly life-altering moment because that fusion of souls unlocks boundless joy, happiness, and love. You get a sacred bond with another person that can never be broken. You're like, I'm already in, Rose. Like, I've already, I've already given you the money at this point. Like, I don't need, this is a hard, you, stop drilling. You've already hit oil. You know what I mean? Sure. Anyway, it keeps going and going and going, this whole thing. This sketch and reading can unfold for you just like the cards predicted. In fact, it could be your future spouse because a twin flame is destined to be together unlike sometimes with soulmates. Got it. Best okay. wishes, Psychic Rose. Now, <clears throat> here's the thing. So I, I, I put that money down, and I made the, the exchange, uh, and they said within 24 hours, you will get an email wow. in your inbox. This is the email address to come from. Save it so it doesn't go to your spam. Sure. And it will be your sketch of your twin flame. Now, there was an upsale for an additional 10 they could put it in color. And I clicked no thank you. And then a box comes up and says, so I guess you don't want to know the color of your twin flame's eyes? <laughs> wow. Like, wow. Great sales pitch. But I'm good with the black sure. and white. It's okay. I'll, of course. I'll fill in the blank. You know what I mean? Fine. Sure. I mean, every step along the way, they're trying to upsell you. I've managed of to somehow course. skirt free, skirt through, uh, you know, I didn't, I didn't do any of the upsells. Great. But here's the deal. The sketch never came. The sketch never came. What has come since is so many update emails from Psychic Rose. So many emails. I, I mean, I'm on a list now that's probably going to be hellish to get off of. It's probably going to be like all those things she listed that were uh, the dire consequences of making the wrong of choice. I, but here's, here's where the true comedy... I started giggling to myself thinking about this earlier. Here's where the true comedy comes in for me. What's that process going to be like? Dear Psychic Rose, <laughs> I paid for my sketch and have not received it. Mm -hmm. And then if I don't get a response, do I need to call my credit card company and explain to them that I gave $20 to a random company? I don't know the name of the company. I don't know how I found it. I don't know where it is. It was somewhere on TikTok that I found during a fever dream at some point while I was ill. And uh, do I have a receipt? Not really, but I definitely have a bunch of hard sell emails from Psychic Rose just reminding me that if I make a bad choice, I'm going to be single forever. You know, those mm -hmm. are the moments that I go, I guess maybe this wasn't the funny story I thought it would be for the podcast, but it's, it still is. <laughs> <laughs> you can't always get what you want, but you might just get what you need. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Look, I, I think of all the ways I thought this might turn out. I mean, part of me thought you were going to pull up a sketch that looked like me. Uh, <laughs> and I was going to be like, fair. Um, or you as Burt Bird. Oh, preferably. Preferably, preferably. absolutely. Yes. Uh, I'd even take me as Riker. Oh, uh, I, we all would. We all would. <laughs> thank you very much. Um, it's just, <laughs> there was... No part of me, no yeah. part of me yep. that thought the answer was going to be no sketch. No sketch. Like, <laughs> and what's worse is oh, that what I, Rose. I found myself doing today was constantly refreshing my email, constantly checking my spam. Like I was like all of a sudden I'm like a, 
Now I've turned into what she was warning me against. She, you're invested now. I've, I'm too invested in a toxic lover. And the toxic lover in this case is Psychic Rose not making good on that twin flame sketch I paid $20, $20 for. 20 American dollars. You love this. I'm like, well, now do I need to find this Psychic Rose and see if I get a sketch or if this is just a full scam and Psychic Rose is an episode? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know what? I never thought about that, but you're right. You know what? Psychic Rose, if you're listening, I mean, she is supposed to be psychic. Maybe she knows. Um, psychic Rose knows. So sorry. Like that. Uh, we're going to find you. Like, maybe, you know, I may not know where you came from, but. But I'll find out where you where you go. I just need to believe someone like Psychic Rose is like a an art teacher trying to make ends meet, a little extra cash on the side. I mean, something. that's that's you know? the hope. You know, if someone gives you money, you give them the product. Just give me the product. Just we, give me what I paid for. Know. I just want to get what I paid for. Yeah, you know, and then I'm like. Did I get delayed because I didn't get the upsale? Because I didn't go for the colored eyes, you know? Sure. Even still, it's still a transaction. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Again, that's why I want the nope, nope button, the breathalyzer on my phone, where I'm like, I'm too, yeah. I'm too sick to consent. You know what I'm saying? I, I do like the idea. Um, okay, fine. If a breathalyzer is too much. The idea where you're about to make a purchase and then your phone like comes up with some sort of like, uh-oh, here's a, I don't know, here's a math problem. Figure it out. That's there, the yeah. only way that you can make this purchase. And then the thing is, I'll never spend money. <laughs> What's the quadratic formula, it would ask. And I would say negative yeah. B plus or minus the square root of B squared minus 4AC all over 2A. I, that oh. stuck with me. <laughs> Never going to use it again. No. Well, Ever. for these moments. Yeah, but I couldn't. T I and couldn't you're going to apply it. I couldn't apply it. Well, I'm not asking you to apply it. I'm saying you just show off at parties with it. Sure. Sure. But again, if you said to me, okay, great, that's a quadratic. How do you use the quadratic equation? Yes. I have no idea. Oh, okay. Well, you know what well, I mean? Like, I don't know how already to put it steps into, ahead of me. Well, I want you to know I quickly Googled psychic rows. Something that oh, came no. up was, I guess, one of the real housewives had a psychic rose who has passed. Oh, that's... But then I saw this headline, Rose Marks, psychic family matriarch, found guilty on 14 counts of fraud. And just like that, did we find our gal. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Can you imagine? I mean... No... No, this is a different, this is a different M.O. This is no. from 2013. <laughs> Thank you for M.O. <laughs> You're very welcome. Uh, she swindled Fort Lauderdale and New York residents out of nearly $25 million. She had a brilliant Ow. idea. If you can convince troubled people that money is evil, they will let you hold their fortunes until everything cools out. The trick is, things will never actually get better for the troubled person, so you just hold on to the cash indefinitely. I mean, that is a interesting grift. I wonder if she's still alive. I mean, it's it's possible. Does it say if does it say if she can draw? <laughs> not it wasn't a part of it. Was not a part huh. of it. 
listen, what I'm learning is just to add in is there could be a lot of psychic roses. Which is probably yeah, good because I don't want to get sued for defamation after this. Although by who? I don't know the name of the company. Well, that would be the way to find out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so in a roundabout way. Yeah. Then I, I guess we need to say something negative. I so guess if- Rose can reach out so we can be, aha! <laughs> there if I got are. a cease and desist, then I could say, now I know who to contact about getting my $20 back. Of course. Of course. I mean, on one hand, thank God it was only $20. Yeah. I I got concerned at first before you said the amount. I was like, how much is this going to be? I'll pay 20 Um, bucks for almost any bit. You know what I mean? 20 bucks. Well, you love a souvenir photo. I love a souvenir photo. I'll buy any souvenir photo anywhere. I will literally tell the souvenir photos people, like, you don't have to sell me. Don't give me the spiel. Like, you're done. Yes. It's a yes. It's always a yes. I went on a first date. This was not super recent, but fairly recent. And there was a souvenir photo guy. And we got the photo. And listen, the dude was like, we got to get this. This is too funny. And I was like, yes. And then I was like, so charmed. And then I never heard from that man again. That's not, that's not true. I did hear from him again, like what, two months later? Remember? Oh, is he uh, the J name? Yeah. There is a J name. Mm, I didn't want to say it out loud. Well, but uh, anyway, I also may have already said too much, but the point is, yeah. Yeah. And then, yeah, I, was, I, and then I just didn't respond because I was like, you know what? No. And I, I thought it was a great date. Anyway, the follow up to that is Raya, the former yeah. celebrity dating app, which is now yeah. kind of whoever. Um, if you go on there, you have to have a referral so you can look through who is in your contacts, who is, is on there. Sure. And uh, and you can ask them. Well, that dude asked me for a referral. That, that, he that did was, not. That was a few weeks ago, yes. And I was like, are you kidding me? Now listen. Stand down, sir. Stand down, sir. And if you're listening to the podcast, because he did for a time, if you're listening to the podcast, you know what, sir? Here's the deal. I thought we had a really great time. Really yeah. enjoyed, really enjoyed our time. And, you know, it just, it left a little something to be desired to not hear from you for some time. Yeah. It fumbled the there ball, was that- man. Uh, the, the 90s ball. started with that whole, like, you have to wait so many days to call her. But it's certainly not two months. Yeah. It was a long you know, time. Yeah. Mm-mm. If you have a good Mm-mm. time, reach out. Keep the energy going. Reach out and touch me. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Never apologize for your songs, because I always think I know where it's going to go, and then I don't. Yeah. So it's always a delight. Listen. Hands, touching hands. I again, I don't know that I'm well yet. I'm on the on the upswing, yeah. but I wouldn't say that I'm Oh, I you know once we get into these notes, we're gonna realize <laughs> I'm not great either. <laughs> <laughs> what I always like is when you uh when we, we go through an episode that one of us has researched when we were either underslept or in this case just out of your mind and illness. This is gonna be great. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, the the problem with this one in particular is it wasn't a usual, like, something's happened. What happened? Who did it? Yeah. It wasn't one of those. It was like a, this has happened, and then there's this. And you're like, oh, what's that? Oh, well, it looks like that. But then what's that? Well, it's kind of that. But when was that? And it just kept going. And it was to a point where I was like, am I imagining all of this? Like, if I made all of this up in my mind, 
uh, to make it more interesting? No, no, these are real things that happened in this case. It's just my brain is <laughs> just on fire and not really knowing what's happening. And look, it it, it was <laughs> last week wasn't great for me. <laughs> Uh, so I was lucky to get this where it was now, but, uh, good God. Um, heaven help us all. Listen, absolutely. And I'm all for it. (laughs) That just made me, that just made me think of, I don't need to get into this. What am I doing? Why am I bringing this up? Okay. I gotta, I gotta find the name of it on TikTok. Because, again, that's where we get all of our news. I'm kidding. Not real news. But um, there's this That's where we get our celebrity goss. Thank you. And in this case, drug information. So there's this drug. (laughs) Now listen to this because it just – it it connects what you were just saying where you were like, did I make this all up? There's this drug that you can take. I'll find the name of it before we're done. Is it limitless? What's that? Is it limitless? No, it's not limitless. (laughs) But um, unless I'm forgetting that this was in limitless. But anyway – Basically, the whole thing is, is that you, you take it and it, your trip lasts, I think, around seven minutes. But in that time, people have entire lifetimes. Oh, I so, hate that. Oh, my God. So people have talked about like 30 years of time. Oh, my God. Yes. And oh, so I would pe- hate that. People will come out of this, this drug trip and then be like, where's my wife? Where are my children? Because they've lived an entire other life. Now, the interesting thing about this is that your body, apparently, your brain releases this right as you die. So there is a, the theory is, is that perhaps the afterlife, et cetera. Sure. Which can go on and on and on. Because I've also heard that there's brain activity after you've, you have officially died. There is activity in the brain, I think, for about seven or eight minutes is, was one of the studies I read years ago. So the idea being that it's like, this could be continuing this other reality for you that that feels like it lasts an eternity, or in this sure. case, 30 to 40 years. But when I was hearing about this, I was like, I can't imagine anything more depressing. <laughs> yeah. Can you imagine all of a sudden waking? Like, what if, what if in like, and like, this is what scares me. Like, what if in five minutes... I wake up and it's all a dream. Like it's all been a drug trip. This whole thing. I'd be so mad at myself. What's my other life? Then you have to go back to your other life. What if your other life is worse than your dream drug life? I never thought in a million years I would hear you say, what if your real life isn't (laughs) as good as your drug life? Uh, But yeah, that sounds like a horror show, right? And I'm like, I don't understand, like, I guess people, I guess I can understand why people want to take this, but then I'm also like, do I? I just feel like that sounds like such a nightmare. I don't know what the benefit is. Yeah. I don't Nothing know. but depression. It feels Because whatever you've got in there, you're not going to be able to get out there. Like, you're not going to, it's never going to be the same. Sure, you could go in, have this trip and have a, have children and be married, and then in your real life, meet someone and have children, be married, whatever, but it will never be the exact same. And what if you go into the drug trip and that's a terrible life? 
And then you're living this terrible life for 30 oh. years. And then you wake up and you go, you fucking dummy. <laughs> Why did you do that to me? You put me yeah. through a terrible other life. This life was fine. I don't know. I, it just sounds to me like, again, that's the beginning of a horror movie. I just don't, I can't. I'm too, ner- I'm too nervous. Oh, no. That's, no. There's no interest there. Right? What, what, what positive thing's going to happen from that? I don't know. And I don't know. I only heard a few people talk about it. Because um, some people talked about how it was, like, really hard to come down from, obviously. How it's, sure. like, really confusing and whatever. And it's not like some of the other hallucinogenics that that they think are really helpful in curing different mental illnesses and stuff like that. Cause there's been lots of research about, you know, different micro micro dosing and, and ketamine, which is a, a different thing, et cetera, which I think there's a lot of science to prove that all of that is, is correct, but this is a different thing. And I, I don't know. I don't know. I just don't know what, oh. again, like the fact that it's like, well, see you in 30 years. It sounds horrifying. Like would you, would there be anyone there that you know? Like, would your brain have people that you know? Like, if I take this, are you going to be in there? I don't know. I don't, I, I mean, w- what if not? What if not? And then what if when you come back, it's like you hardly remember the other people because you have, you know what I'm saying? You have total new memories. I guess oh, eventually I, it fades, but I don't I don't know. And I don't know what the like I don't know what the long term like I don't know how long it sticks with you. I don't know whether sure. you, you stick with these memories for like a day, a week, a month, a lifetime. I don't know. I don't know what that is, but it was it was the number one thing was people were like, in that seven minutes, I live for thirty years, basically. Oh, that sounds awful. Yeah. Oh, I would hate I guess you could look at it as if people were like searching after everlasting life or something, you could look at it as like, well, if you did that a couple times, you would have lived a couple other lifetimes, but but not really, right? It's it's a it's it's not real, so yeah, like this sounds like something in a movie, but like only rich people can do it, like super super rich people who have like who spend like millions of dollars hundreds of millions of dollars on these things where like some sort of company has crafted the perfect <clears throat> life for you so you get to go in that life whereas really you're just living by yourself and you're sad and you hate everything yes but i guess my concern is what if your memories that are your actual memories start to get mixed up with memories from the trip. Oh my God. Now you're just writing the movie. Yeah, I am. (laughs) (laughs) Patent pending. Copyright us. Yeah. Cause this, right. I mean, Oh fuck. Leo would crush this. I gotta find out what the name of this drug is. I'm going to figure it out by the time we're done. Mm -hmm. I'll, I'll Google on the break. DMT. I think it's DMT. Wow. It's DMT. Okay. Uh, Yeah. So anyway, yes. Long story short, too late. Um, Yeah, it feels, again, like just a terrifying experience that 
Anybody that I did speak talk hear talk about it, which were very few, they didn't talk sure. about it like it was great. You know what I mean? Like they were like, oh. it was terrifying. It was really confusing, blah, blah, blah. Sure. Um, yeah. But again, maybe they took too much. Maybe other people have different experiences. I don't want anyone to think that I'm saying anything ultimately negative about this. I'm just saying from what was communicated to me, it sounded sure. very scary. <laughs> That's all. Oh, it sounds horrific. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. it absolutely sounds like I've paid $50 million and I'm sitting in a lush private room somewhere. Yep. And they've got me on this trip where I'm going to live my best life that they have like handcrafted for me. All yes. the things that I said I wanted to do. And then when I wake up, I'm <clears throat> horribly sad <laughs> because it's yeah. gone. And then maybe that's like the motivator to try and get back to it. Yeah, maybe. It also is possible that not everyone has this experience or that these are like only some people have these experiences. That's also possible. Sure. Anyway. Oh, it's Regardless, for the plot of our movie, it's going to be terrifying. Oh, it has to be the worst. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, God. Someone's going to flip a table. <laughs> it, it's like, going to oh, be Where's video? Claire? And then like yelling. Yep. Yelling for Claire this whole time. Yep. And then they're like, Mr. Spielberg. <laughs> Mr. Spielberg. <laughs> this is we our protagonist, Steven Spielberg. We can't use the name Spielberg. Can we? Well, um, it's just, I love that that, I was like, what's a random, you know, generic last name? Spielberg. What if the premise of the movie was that Steven Spielberg, it was all in his drug trip, and when he wakes up, he didn't make any of those movies? Oh, my God. A world without Jurassic Park? Into the sea. I will just walk into the sea. A world without Laura Dern uh, in those shorts, elbow deep in Triceratops shit. I would die without that movie what i Not like was to the, be dramatic that was the first touchstone for you yeah yeah i my love of jurassic park i mean my god sam neill spending that full two hour whatever uh being like i hate children i don't like children and the children gravitating to him i mean i think that was my first experience with a daddy I'm sorry, did you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'd rather not circle back, but yeah. <laughs> did you say with a daddy? I do believe I did. Um, yeah. Again, not well. Not well. Look, um, look, Sam Neill, he's no nonsense in that. What, what gets me is right out the gate when he basically threatens that child at the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> I'll say it. Hot. Like yeah. when he when he makes that kid like, don't speak out of turn and don't speak to adults like that. And that kid was like, and terrified for life. Like he scarred that kid for life. And I was like, uh-huh. That did Guess it. Guess that for you. kid shouldn't have opened his lip, huh? <laughs> Wowzer. I've lost my mind. The point is, I live for that movie. I love that movie a lot. And I mean, my God, Jeff Goldblum in that movie. The heaving chest. 
I'm always sh- leaning. Come I'm on. shocked it's taking you this long to get to Jeff Goldblum is my point. The fact that Laura Dern's shorts were the first thing that got brought up is just surprising. Oh, Laura Dern in that movie? Stop it. <laughs> I'm not <laughs> judging. I'm not judging. I was just shocked because I know your love of Goldblum. That's all. That's all. Look, things I respond to in the original <laughs> Jurassic Park. One, Laura Dern's outfit. Two, the way... Uh, Laura Dern and Sam Neill react when they first see their dinosaurs. It's it warms my heart. Uh, three, oh, that lady T Rex. <laughs> I love her so much. She's a strong, powerful woman. She takes no shit, and we need her in the rest of the movies. It turns we do, out. we do. And then, of course, like four, Jeff Goldblum. Wait, and when does Sam Neill scarring the child come into it for you? No, you're right. You're right. Three scarring of the child, four the dinosaur, five Jeff Goldblum. Wow. Yeah. That shocks me. Yeah. Well, it shocks me almost as much as I was shocked at how how heavily I responded to Chris Pine and Don't Worry Darling. I'm just realizing we haven't talked about Don't Worry Darling on the show yet, have we? We have not. Because I've seen it now. Well, we don't have time. We've run out of time. Let's talk about it next week. Yeah, well, well, listen, we better write it down. Long story short, too late. I came for Harry, but I stayed for Pine. That's all I'm going to say. Good for you. Oh, God, yeah. Wow. Wowzer. <laughs> that is such a, a more healthy answer than easily my top four. <laughs> Jurassic Park. Listen. It's a problem. I would love someday for someone to be like, hey, what do you like about that movie? And for me to give a nice answer that I'm okay with everybody hearing. As opposed to the rattled off answer that I go, oh, that probably wasn't great out loud. <sighs> Listen. that Just once. Just once, you know? Yeah. I get it. Yeah. Uh. But listen, I don't think that's how I'm built. That's the charm that makes the people love you. It's the reason I love you. One of one of a thousand. Uh, and uh, it's why we're here. Yeah. Quite frankly. And the other reason we're here is to talk about the case of Charles Morgan. Yeah. Charles Morgan. This is the August Patreon patrons poll uh, winner. Uh, we're on Patreon. Patreon.com slash cocktails. Over there you can uh, vote on an episode a month that we'll cover on this main feed of the podcast. So check that out if you'd like more information about that. It's a subscription-based service. We do all kinds of fun things over there. Bonus episodes, live Q&As. It's a time. Uh, But Charles Morgan is, of course, the episode. I'm going to give you a little bit of a backstory right now. In the spring of 1977, escrow agent Charles Morgan mysteriously disappeared while on his way to work. Three days later, Charles arrived back home in the middle of the night, claiming that he had been administered hallucinogenic drugs and that his family was in danger. Two months later, Charles vanished again. His body was later found in the desert. So what happened to Charles Morgan? Who would want him dead? And why would police be so quick to label his death a suicide? In a case that asks more questions than it answers, get ready for a journey that will include the mob, the Bible, and Christie's brain devolving into madness. What are the chances that I brought up hallucinogenics? Yeah, this. That's wild. Yeah, there. Everything, everywhere you think this is going to go, it doesn't. It goes everywhere else. It's a weird 
thing, but the fact that, uh, look, it's a whole nice synergy that... Synchronicity! You brought up some sort of, you know, hallucinogens. You didn't know what was coming. I didn't! I don't pre-read. We don't pre-read the synopses. Why would we? To make sure that they... Be organized? (laughs) To make sure that they're rehearsed and sound good? That's not what we do on this show. (laughs) No, we aren't... uh, I mean, we often mention an editor, yeah. but we don't edit. Nothing actually gets cut out. <laughs> if we can help it. If we so can if you it. ever think, oh, I must be missing some of the good stuff. No. Nope. No, we keep that Jurassic Park shit for everyone. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, I mean, someday I may have you test me. Because you know uh, specific things that I like and just have you like pick one thing and I have to give you like my top five, what are my favorite things from that movie or that show or something. And yep. Oh, God. But of course, there are ones that it's a slippery slope. Yep. Jurassic Park, it was, it was lucky I could narrow it down in a quick moment. Yeah. And I only specifically chose the first movie. If we got into Jurassic World, that's a whole other. A whole new world. Don't you dare close your eyes. Never could, never would. Oh, Lord. Okay, so we are going to just let my brain all melt together. Let's do it. Disclaimer, off the top, this episode will contain mentions of suicide. So trigger warning for those who need it. Uh, I'm also going to say right off the top, uh, I have to pronounce some things that aren't exactly in my wheelhouse. Um, For example, off the top of my head, Spanish words and um, biblical words. Uh (laughs) So uh, mispronunciations may occur. I'm just doing my best to get by. (laughs) So a lot of a lot of phonetics in this and uh, I tried to read it over today but my brain would not focus so wishing us all the best we're gonna do great so Charles Curtis Morgan was born March 16th 1938 in Everett Washington to Leonard and Doris Morgan he had a younger brother named Michael who passed away around the age of 11 in July 1958 Most of the people who spoke about Charles referred to him as Chuck. So for the sake of consistency, I will use Chuck for the remainder of the episode. Not much is known about Chuck's early life, but at some point he married Ruth Eileen Ostro, who was born in February 11th, 1933 in Seattle, Washington. Between approximately 1961 and 1967, Chuck and Ruth had four daughters Megan, Aaron, Heather, and Colleen. Due to the real estate boom in the area, Chuck had become president of his own escrow agency in Tucson, Arizona. On March 22, 1977, Chuck drove his oldest two daughters to school and then disappeared. Three days later, Ruth woke up around 2 a.m. to the sound of their dog barking. When she followed the dog to the kitchen door, she discovered Chuck standing outside. His hands were zip-tied together, he was missing a shoe, and he had a plastic handcuff around one ankle. 
Chuck was weak, and he staggered through the door, not saying a word. He kept motioning to his throat. This is a quote uh, about from Ruth about that evening. Quote, I asked him, can you talk? Can you write? He shook his head yes, so I went and got a tablet and a pen. He wrote that his throat had been painted with a hallucinogenic drug, and the drug could drive him uh, insane or destroy his nervous system and kill him. I wanted to call a doctor and the police, but he was adamant that he would be signing, that that would be signing a death warrant for our entire family. Chuck refused to identify his abductors. For a week, Ruth nursed her husband back to health by giving him water with an eyedropper. Before his voice returned, Chuck wrote notes admitting he had been secretly working for the government for the past two to three years and that the mystery people had taken his treasury ID. Ruth said this was the first time she had heard anything about any treasury ID or Chuck's involvement with the government. After a couple of weeks, Chuck tried to go on with life as usual. However, he was understandably more nervous. He drove his kids both to and from school and refused to let anyone else do it. And Chuck also started wearing a bulletproof vest daily. Hmm. On June 7th, 1977, just over two months after Chuck first disappeared, he disappeared a second time. That morning, he went to visit his parents and told them that if anything should happen to him, a letter would arrive explaining everything. No such letter has ever been found. Nine days later, Ruth received a phone call from a woman who said, quote, Ruthie, Chuck is all right. Ecclesiastes 12, 1 through 8. Then the woman hung up. For those who are unfamiliar, and potentially because I'm butchering it, uh, Ecclesiastes is a book in the Old Testament. One particular passage from it reads, quote, Men are afraid of a high place and of terrors on the road. Remember him before the silver cord is broken and the golden bowl is crushed. Then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the Spirit will return to God who gave it. I will point out that passage is specifically from the King James Version. I know it varies slightly uh, based on the version. For example, King James Version ends uh, with, quote, Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher, all is vanity. Whereas the New International Version ends with, quote, Everything is meaningless. So I couldn't tell you which version he uh, or this woman, whoever called, was specifically referring to. Uh, on June 18, 1977, just two days after the mysterious phone call, Chuck's body was found near his car in the desert, about 40 miles or 64 kilometers southwest of Tucson. Inside Chuck's Mercury Cougar, police found handwritten directions to the murder site, which appeared to have been written by Chuck. There was also a pair of unknown sunglasses, which, according to his family, did not belong to Chuck. Police also found multiple weapons and ammunition in the car, and on the back seat, wrapped up in a white handkerchief, was one of Chuck's teeth. Oh my god! The car itself had been modified so it could be unlocked from the fender, which feels like some James Bond-level stuff. Yeah. 
but okay. Uh, Chuck was wearing a bulletproof vest, a gun holster, and a belt buckle that concealed a knife. Chuck died from a single gunshot wound to the back of the head, which was fired at close range with Chuck's own 357 caliber Magnum handgun, which was found near the body. However, no fingerprints were found on the gun or in the car. However, the coroner noted gunpowder and residue on Chuck's hands, so the sheriff's department determined Chuck's death to be a suicide. Uh-huh. 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 Uh, he had been dead for approximately 12 hours when he was found, but I could not find a specific time as to when the body was found or who found it. Uh, Chuck was just 39 at the time of his death, he was described as a devoted father and husband. The majority of people in the sheriff's department believed that Chuck had taken his own life, but how many suicides involve a person shooting themselves in the back of the head while wearing a bulletproof vest? I'm yeah. going to guess probably none. A few in the department did believe that Chuck's death was a murder, However, according to journalist Don Devereaux, those officers ended up fearing for their lives and leaving the department. Two even moved out of the United States entirely. Oh my God! Two days after Chuck's body was found, a woman called the sheriff's department saying that she met up with Chuck at the Lamp Post Motel just before he died. The woman refused to give her real name and only referred to herself as Green Eyes. She said that Chuck had been hiding out at a motel since his disappearance the week before. The woman said at the meeting, Chuck showed her a briefcase with over $60,000 in cash. Chuck told her he was going to use the money to buy himself out of a gang contract that had been taken out on his life. Some have theorized that possibly Chuck met up with the killer in hopes of giving him the money uh, but that the killer double-crossed Chuck, killed him, and then took the money anyway, because no suitcase was found either at the hotel, motel, rather, or at the car. Uh, Green Eyes also admitted to being the person who called Chuck's wife days before his death. The real identity of Green Eyes has never been discovered. Three weeks after Chuck's death, Two men, claiming to be with the FBI, showed up at Ruth's door, asking to search the house. After ransacking the place, they left empty-handed. The FBI claims the men weren't with them. Oh. However, the FBI also claimed they'd never heard of Chuck Morgan, despite the fact that they had once opened an investigation into him. I'm not convinced these men were the FBI, or even if they were, the FBI doesn't take me as the type to open uh, with that sort of information and be like, hey, we're just going to come to your house and then be like, oh, yeah, I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. Like, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's, again, it. we haven't even got to the part that <laughs> melts your brain yet, but <laughs> we're getting there. Oh, <laughs> that's funny. There it is. <laughs> so, something, <laughs> the part about all of this that's just destroyed me mentally There was a potential clue on the body found clipped inside of Chuck's underwear was an American $2 bill. 
On the bill was a list of seven Spanish last names written in alphabetical order from A through G, as well as the words Ecclesiastes 12 with arrows drawn on the serial numbers referencing 1 and 8. The Bible verse being uh, the same message that the mysterious woman gave when she called Ruth days prior to Chuck's death. On the back of the $2 bill, there is a recreation of a painting uh, made of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. Several of the men in the photo were numbered 1 through 7, and there was also a crude map drawn of roads that run between Tucson and the Mexican border, including Robles Junction. So, that was a lot in a small span. So we're going to break this down in Christie's Land of Madness. So, yeah. starting with the names. So the front of the bill, on the front left-hand side of the bill, the following names were listed in a column. My <laughs> apologies, because this is not um, going to be pretty. But, um, Acevedo. Bejerano, Cajerano, oh, Cajero, there, yeah, there we go. Bejerano, Cajero, Duerte, Encinas, Fuente, and Gradias. Now, the general consensus from people seems to be that these are all last names, and they might be, and it might be just as simple as that. I just find it hard to believe that there are seven names and they just happen to each start with the first seven letters of the alphabet. That feels a little too uh, coincidental uh, for me. Yeah. So maybe they're code names for specific people, or maybe the names are a code for something else. For example, Cajero means cashier or teller in English. Fuente means fountain. Encinas means oaks, and Acevedo uh, means a grove of holly trees. So what if instead of a group of names, the list is a bunch of clues meant to lead someone to a specific place, maybe somewhere that Chuck buried important information? I have, of course, driven myself crazy with this potential secret message. And if it had something to do with being buried near holly, that's not narrowing anything down because holly oak is most planted in Arizona and California. So that's not narrowing anything down specifically. But then I'm like, is the word fountain important? There is a fountain dedicated to students who died in World War I called the Burger Memorial Fountain. It's in the center of University of Arizona Mall. Could something be hidden there? Does it reference the city of Fountain Hills, which is 130 miles or 207 kilometers northwest of Tucson? Once you feel like you've deciphered one clue, it's hard to know if you're headed in the right direction because there are so many different ways to decipher this. And do not get me wrong. You know I love a cipher. I love trying to solve some sort of puzzle. But honestly, this has nearly driven me insane. <laughs> Yeah, I get it. Uh, during a week where illness made my brain feel like it was both foggy and on fire, 
Suddenly, I'm trying to decipher clues that include Bible verses and Spanish translations and maps of Arizona and the Founding Fathers, (laughs) which I've had to give myself a crash course on. Speaking of which, the men who are numbered on the back, I'm also realizing I should have sent you these photos um, in the email so that you could see them for yourself. Oh, that's okay. That's my bad. Um, So on the back of the bill... Uh, is the recreation of this painting of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. Seven of these men have been, like, I, we assume Chuck wrote on the on this bill. So seven of these men have been numbered. Uh, they are in order, one through seven. Uh, it's John Hancock, Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, Robert R. Livingston, Roger Sherman, John Adams, and Samuel Adams. And here we go again with Christie's crazy making. Why were those specific men chosen? Fun fact about the Declaration of Independence, other than the fact that Nicholas Cage has had his eye on it since National Treasure. <laughs> the Declaration was signed by 56 people. However, only 47 were depicted in the painting. There are also five men in the painting who did not sign the document at all, including Robert R. Livingston, who was numbered on Chuck's uh, $2 bill. The seven men who were numbered by Chuck are all considered to be founding fathers, but other than that, why were those specific men chosen? Five of the seven were the Committee of Five, who drafted and presented the Declaration to Congress before it was signed, And while I could be completely off base here, it just feels so specific for all five men from the Committee of Five to be included in this list of seven. The non-committee men numbered on the bill were Sam Adams and John Hancock. Fun fact, John Hancock was not only the first and third governor of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, but apparently known for his very large and fancy signature, so much so that The term John Hancock has now become associated with signatures. For example, if you want someone to sign something, especially in Canada and the U.S., they might ask for your John Hancock. And that's where you sign. Or if you're Chris Farley, you say Herbie Hancock. (laughs) Herbie Hancock. (laughs) That man. What What a fucking treasure. I can't. It makes my heart smile, but makes my heart hurt all at the same time. Oh, yeah. Um, and it might be a fun fact about John Hancock. It might not be. I don't know. But the point is, it still doesn't give us a clue as to why John Hancock was included on this list. But then my brain starts thinking, well, each man was given a number. Does that mean that's some sort of a clue? Like... Does John Hancock mean signature and Benjamin Franklin means bifocals? There was a pair of sunglasses found in the car. Like this is this is where this is where I've been in my fever dream. Um, I'm sure you can understand how this just devolved into pure madness as I've gone on uh, this week. But was there a specific reason for the order of the numbers? Or were they just random? It's not, the men were not ordered based on age, the year they were born, the year that they died. Um, It's definitely not alphabetical order. So then I start thinking, well, 
What else could the names mean? And suddenly I'm down a Google Maps rabbit hole, because in Tucson there happens to be East Hancock uh, Vista, West Franklin Street, South Jefferson Avenue, South Livingston Street Drive, South Sherman Avenue, East Adams Street, West Adams Street, and the fact that there was only like one of each except for Adams, when there was two Adams on the list. Uh, and did I trace each street on a piece of paper and then try and fit them together like a puzzle? <laughs> you bet I did. <laughs> did anything come from it? No. No, it didn't. Can I ask something? And you probably have already done this. Please. Yes. So I'm sure you've already done this. But the seven names or words on the front. Yeah. Did you look for, for example, Fountain Fuente? Yeah. Did you look for a fountain on Adams? Like, did you? I did not. Oh, boy. <laughs> oh, I know. See, this, so is, this is the thing. I'm so this sorry. This is the thing. You, you think you're one way, and you're like, oh, this makes sense. This makes sense. I think I'm on it. And then you're like 10 feet away, and you're like, wait, what just happened? And there, see, this is why you and I should be in a big room with a big whiteboard. Yeah, because then it could be like a check cashing place for cashier on Jefferson, for example. Right? My only issue was while I'm looking at the map now, it's like, this would be from the 70s. Right. So it's like, so how many places are going to still be in existence? Source from map <laughs> of Tucson oh, from 70s. If, Sorry. If I could have had a map of Tucson from the 70s that I could physically draw on, I wanted to draw, like I, I have them all pin, all of those streets pinpointed in a in a Google map that I have stared at a lot and it makes a weird shape, but nothing, I don't know. Again, it's, <laughs> there's just like the layers to this very seemingly simple $2 bill. Yeah. Has tried to implode my brain and I, there's just so many possibilities. And my thing, why seven numbers? Why only number one through seven? But to that point, there were seven numbers written on the back of the bill, and there were seven names written on the front of the bill. Is the number seven important? Well, according to the Encyclopedia of Freemasonry, seven is a sacred number because it contains the numbers three and four, which represent the triangle and the square, which are said to be perfect figures. I prefer an hourglass. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I have fucking lost it. I love it. So sorry. Uh, it also references um, that there are seven colors in the rainbow, seven days in the week, etc. Uh, regarding Freemasonry, seven brethren are required to work a lodge. So is that why Chuck chose two lists of seven? Because it was a special number for the Freemasons. Some say that Chuck was a member of the Freemasons, and of the seven men who were numbered on Chuck's bill, five of them were absolutely Freemasons. Two, people say they weren't, but if I've learned anything about the Freemasons, we... We'll never truly know. Um, but some of our OG listeners might recall me talking about the Freemasons in the Ray Rivera episode way back in season one, episode five. Uh, Thank you. Specific. 
Uh, and there's just so much to the Freemasons that we don't have time to get into it fully here. We didn't have time to get fully into it back then. Uh, but if nothing else, Freemasons is yet another reference to the Nicolas Cage classic National Treasure. Of course. So since there were seven numbers on the back of the bill and seven names on the front, does that mean each name corresponds to a number? But in that case, what does Benjamin Franklin have to do with the name Bejarano? Are the names part of a code or a cipher? Is there some sort of document that would tie all of this together? Maybe the letter that Chuck mentioned to his parents. Would that help make any of this make sense? And what about the crude map that referenced the area between Tucson and the Mexican border? The distance is approximately 70 miles or 113 kilometers, and the map featured the town of Robles Junction. At the time, it was known for drug smuggling. Uh, it had multiple landing strips. So is it possible that Chuck got himself mixed up in something with a drug cartel or the mob, and these clues were meant to lead police to some sort of big bust? Or was it just maybe these notes were just a bunch of gibberish written by a man in the throes of a mental breakdown? Chuck's wife said he was paranoid prior to his sec second disappearance. So is it possible that the stress of work and the first disappearance got to him and Chuck started to mentally fall apart? Is it also possible that it's absolute gibberish that whoever killed him placed on him to just completely throw everybody off. It's just, no matter what it is, it's just a never-ending number of questions, and nothing seems to make sense. Yeah, nothing makes sense. Exactly. Yeah. Wow! I mean, I've got a million questions, but I know that you've probably already asked them 20 to 75 times each. <laughs> um, wow. Okay. Well, look, we're, we're off to the races uh, in a way that I wasn't expecting. Hey. I'll be honest. I'll, I'll be honest. Yeah. Uh, I'm just writing down one of my theories I've already been concocting. Um, I love it. My gosh, yeah. You know, what's interesting about this is real, real left-hand turn from what we've been talking about on this show as of late. So this is interesting. Yeah. This is a different one. Um, on that note, we're going to take a quick break. Grab a drink, hit the can, and we'll be right back with this very perplexing case, the case of Charles Chuck Morgan, on this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. 
That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome back to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. We are, of course, talking the case of Charles Chuck Morgan. Um, We realized that we forgot to talk about something off the top of the show because I got prattling on about Psychic Rose. And then, of course, we had to talk about Christy's top five favorite things from Jurassic Park. Listen, these were important, important, you know, very Mm -hmm. important. I had to go on about the the drug I couldn't remember the name of. Um, Again, this is the magic of the show. And also classic content. We don't edit. Um, (laughs) But we're very excited because there has been rumblings about there being new Unsolved Mysteries episodes coming out on Netflix. Now, if you are an OG listener of True Crime and Cocktails, you know that we started out, this whole podcast exists because we started by deep diving each of the new Unsolved Mysteries episodes on Netflix. And so this is very exciting. Now, they're setting, they're, they're releasing them in three chunks. Yes. So there's going to be three on October 18th, three on the 25th, and then three on November, whatever the week week (laughs) after is. I believe it's November 1st, but yes. Okay, great. Um, So that's how they're rolling them out over there. And that means that here on our show, we're going to start rolling out our coverage of those new episodes starting November 1st here on this feed of the podcast. So we're so excited about that. We're going back to our roots. Yes. We did it the second. Oh, I can't wait. So that was the first round. Obviously, that's how the podcast started. Then when they did the second round, we watched them all in a day. We binged them all, and we went for them. Um, But this time, it's actually kind of nice, because now we're only going to have to have, well, we're going to have three days of binging, but it's only three episodes per binge. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's going to be a little easier with our schedules. Certainly. Because, of course, when the first set come out, I'm going to be researching something else that week and we don't have time to go from it comes out on a Tuesday and quickly pull something together in two days and make no. that an episode. It's not what we do. Uh, to record. So, uh, yeah, by the time we get into it, it starts November. But uh, unless somehow um, we have already, they do a case that we have already done. Yes. I assume we'll be doing all of them. Yeah, unless there's a double up. Um, and then, yeah. much like we we did before with one of the original Unsolved Mysteries, if there was yeah. some huge update, there's a possibility we would revisit, but that would sure. only be if... I, <laughs> I tend to believe that we would have already uh, crossed all of our T's and dotted all our I's, but you never know. Sure. You never know. But stay tuned for that, dear listeners. We're very excited. Yeah. Unsolved Mystery episodes coming to True Crime and Cocktails starting November 1st. So there you go. Yeah. And I feel like that seamlessly segues back into this episode of the show because you just mentioned to me that Unsolved Mysteries comes into play in this episode. It does. Well, la dee da. Again, everything you think's going to happen in this episode, it's not. Every I mean, time again, you think it's going to zig, <laughs> it zags. I get it. A hundred percent. And then all of a sudden we're talking about Jurassic Park. And I'm like, God, why did Lauren bring that up? (laughs) Weird. (laughs) She didn't. She didn't. (sighs) Oh, God. So, yes. Uh, So Chuck Morgan, this whole case is so confounding. It gets covered on an episode of Unsolved Mysteries, like classic Unsolved Mysteries, back in February 1990. After it aired... A journalist named Don Devereaux gets intrigued, and he starts investigating Chuck's murder himself. 
He soon discovers that between 1973 and 1977, Chuck had used his company to launder money. And not only that, but Chuck had records of transactions for gold, bullion, and platinum worth about a billion dollars. Whoa! Allegedly, there was no real gold or platinum involved in any of these transactions, but rather the transactions existed solely on paper, and the amounts on paper were moved across several escrow accounts, and the it, which by moving them to a certain number of accounts and doing it through a certain number of transactions, it then somehow legitimizes the original one, even though it's not. It, it's like, we're going to pretend we have this money, and if we move it around enough accounts, finally the accounts are like, okay, understood, it's real. But it's not. Oh, wow. I know. It's so weird. Uh, Chuck was said to have made a lot of money from these transactions, and that some of the money came from Southeast Asia. Chuck was also said to have kept duplicates of every illicit transaction that he was part of. Apparently, money laundering was also tied to at least one mob family in Arizona. In the 70s, Arizona state law allowed people to buy land through blind trust accounts, which just made it easy for them to launder money because blind trust accounts can't be traced. So according to Don Devereaux, quote, Chuck was around the edges of a couple of very large organized crime groups in Arizona at the time. It was very easy to get in over your head, and I suspect that over the years, Mr. Morgan was in that kind of situation. These were transactions that only existed on paper. He was a straight businessman that probably got a little too close to the flame. When Ruth was asked about Chuck's involvement, she said, quote, Chuck mentioned to me once that there was money laundering going on, but nothing that he himself was involved in. He told me, quote, the less the girls and you know, the better off you will be. Mm. Which is so ominous, Chuck. Yeah. So if money laundering and other illegal activities were happening in Tucson at the time, were there any other victims? Well, on May 14th, 1990, just three months after the Unsolved Mysteries broadcast of Chuck's episode, a 35-year-old computer draftsman named Peter Douglas Johnston, who was known as Doug, left for work as usual around 11 p.m. Doug worked the graveyard shift at a computer graphics company. An hour later, Doug was found fatally shot in his car, in the company parking lot. He had been shot in the back of the head, behind the left ear, from at least 12 inches away. Police immediately said it was likely a suicide. Again, okay. Uh, but since there was no residue on Doug's hands, no gun found at the scene, and the fact that Doug was right-handed and could not have possibly reached far like that... It seems very unlikely to me that it was a suicide. Yeah. But what does Doug have to do with Don Devereaux and this investigation? Well, it turns out Don Devereaux lived across the street from where Doug was shot. The address of Devereaux's building 
and the address of Doug's work were only one number apart. And Don and Doug drove identical Toyota station wagons. Oh, my God. So Devereaux starts to believe that Doug's death was a hit that was actually meant for Devereaux. In fact, the following year, Devereaux receives a phone call from a journalist friend who said that a CIA contact admitted that there was a contract out for Devereaux's life and that the bullet that killed Doug Johnston was in fact meant for Don Devereaux. What? A year later? What? That's wild! I know. It's, again, it's like, oh, okay, we're dealing with this one guy. Oh, no, no, no. The guy then who starts looking into this guy then starts having problems. It's just, oh, this is never ending. And so the year after uh, all of this comes out, a freelance journalist out of D.C. named Danny Casalero contacted Don Devereaux about Chuck Morgan and the illegal gold transactions. Devereaux agrees to send Dan, sorry, Danny, uh, some information. But before the information actually arrived, Danny was found dead in the bathroom of room 517 at the Sheraton Hotel in Martinsburg, West Virginia. In August 1991. Trigger warning uh, for self-mutilation, but Dan's wrists had been slashed 10 to 12 times each. The coroner ruled his death a suicide. Danny Casalero was just 44. Danny's brother, who was a doctor, said that Danny was so squeamish around blood that there was no chance that he would have ever taken his life in that way. The brother requested an autopsy. One was not done. The body was embalmed almost immediately and against the family's wishes. Prior to his death, Danny told his family uh, he had received several prank calls and threats to his home. Uh, prior to his death, Danny was also investigating Inslaw, which is a computer company that created a program named Promise which was sold to the U.S. government as a predecessor to what would be now like a modern database. Danny said he was close to tying things together, and he was going to meet with a source in West Virginia, which would conclude his research. Sadly, Danny never left West Virginia. When his body was found, all of his notes were missing. Oh. After Danny's death, Chuck Morgan's case along with the potential connection to Danny and Doug Johnston, were featured on a second episode of Unsolved Mysteries in March 1995. That's bold. So there are two. Yeah, and Don Devereaux went on and just was very blunt about everything. And uh, bless him for having that, because I would have been like, I'm staying home. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. At that point, but... Again... It's just everywhere you think this is going, then it goes another way. So I was yeah. like, what's happening? So are Danny, Doug, and Chuck's deaths all connected in some way? And is it just through these shady escrow transactions? Or was there something deeper going on? 
At the time, multiple mob bosses and racketeers, aka criminals involved in more of the white-collar type crimes, started moving into Arizona, which had become a narcotics pipeline from Mexico. So is the mob, then, connected to all of this? It has been stated, although not confirmed, that in May 1977, just one one month before his first disappearance, Chuck Morgan was a secret witness for the Treasury Department in a state fraud case that involved an unknown crime boss. One crime boss in particular, who was in the area at the time, was Joseph Charles Bonanno, uh, who was born in Sicily in 1905 and immigrated to New York three years later. After 10 years in the States, Bonanno's family moved back to Italy, and in 1924, he returned to America by stowing away on a Cuban fishing boat headed to Florida. In 1931, when a mob war ended with the murder of a crime boss, Salvatore Maranzano, 26-year-old Bonanno took it upon himself to become the new leader, which made him the youngest crime boss of a, of a crime family at the time. Wow. In 1963, Bonanno contracted out hits to some of his rivals in the Mafia Commission, which was formed by Charles Lucky Luciano, uh, who you may recall from the Thelma Todd episode. Oh, that's right. Uh, the commission didn't take too kindly to these hits, so the hitman, uh, Joseph Maglio- Maglioco, uh, was forced into retirement, and Bonanno fled to Canada. He returned to the United States briefly a year later before disappearing until 1966, which led to a full mob war referred to as, and I'm serious, the Banana War. (laughs) Because Bonanno was often referred to as Joe Bananas. (laughs) Again, the idea of the mob terrifies me to my core. Same. But I am so in love with their colorful nicknames, I can't help but be charmed by it. Of course. Uh, The Banana War officially ended in 1968 after Bonanno suffered a heart attack and agreed to retire to Arizona. Fun fact, between 1976 and 1981, the Bonanno crime family was infiltrated by an undercover FBI agent who called himself Donnie Brasco. Hey! You may recall the Johnny Depp movie uh, made about the whole ordeal. This caused the family to be the first crime family to be kicked out of the commission. In the 90s, the new head of the family, Joseph Messino, not only got the family back into the commission, but made the Bonanno family the most powerful family in New York at that time. After Bonanno moved to Arizona, other mob bosses started to follow, and soon, More than 500 racketeers moved to Tucson during the 1970s. Wow. Most of them started buying up properties, like bars, hotels, and restaurants. Because as I stated earlier, Arizona state law had loopholes that allowed people to buy land through blind trusts, which made it super easy to launder money. But of course, that wasn't the only less-than-legal activities that were going on at the time, There was also loan sharking and bribing government officials. You know, 
classic mob stuff. Of course. And while records show that Bonanno arrived in 1968, he actually first showed up in Arizona in 1943 as the first crime boss to do so. He bought a house, some land, a bakery, and even a parking lot, for good measure. By the end, he retired with hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of real estate. But again, the move to Arizona was supposedly a retirement for Bonanno. However, it wasn't. According to a police officer, quote, Bonanno is not in retirement. Don't believe it. The only time a mafioso retires is when he dies. He's operating, but quietly. I believe Bonanno has just taken over operations for the mafia on the West Coast, and that means Denver to San Jose to L.A. to Tucson, which feels overwhelming at best. Uh, but Bonanno did die from heart failure at the age of 97 in wow. May 2002. I'm always also shocked when the... The mob guys, it's like, your life is, oh, that's a slippery slope there. And somehow it's like, he was 110. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. somehow they make it so long. Uh, but we know that Bonanno was not the only mob game in Mar Arizona at the time. He was, however, the most famous for sure. Uh, but there was also, and God knows I'm probably saying this wrong, but Peter Licavoli who was the former head of the Purple Gang from Detroit. He was a rum runner during Prohibition. In 1928, he bribed a customs officer with $200 and three bottles of whiskey to get his booze across the border. Well, years later, that customs officer turned on Licavoli, and he was sentenced to two years in prison. Licavoli also ran illegal poker games at the Gotham Hotel in Detroit, in 1944, Licavoli moved to Arizona and started buying up real estate. After being released from a stint in jail for tax evasion in the 60s, Licavoli told a reporter, quote, I've made more money in legitimate business deals in Arizona than I ever made from bootlegging. Legitimate business. Stop Come it. on. I, we aren't buying it. Uh, but the crime that I'm most fascinated by of... This specific man um, happened in July 1930. Two bootleggers known for working in Licavoli's gang were gunned down. Henry Tuppency and Louis Salvio. They were both sitting in a vehicle when, according to witnesses, witnesses which included children playing nearby, a man in a cream-colored silk shirt, striped pants, and black and white shoes walked up to the vehicle and just started firing. Tuppency, who was clearly the intended target, took nine bullets. Salvio took one bullet to the gut and survived. Licavoli was arrested for the murder and attempted murder, but Salvio claimed he didn't even recognize uh, the man with the gun, and he had no idea who the gentleman was in the car with him. I, you gotta love guys that play the game. You know what I mean? What is <laughs> welcome, cookies. <laughs> uh, yeah, welcome back to the show, cookies. Yeah. Yeah, there she is. Whew. So, multiple people, while Salvio would not say it was, in fact, this Licavoli, multiple people would say he, he was the shooter. He was arrested. But for some reason, he was released almost immediately. 
In fact, he was arrested and tried for murder on seven different occasions, but was acquitted every time. Huh. And he was he was also charged with 38 criminal offenses over his career, but only ever did about five and a half years in jail. So, wow. yeah, it's disheartening. Uh, so do I think that someone who literally shot multiple men in a vehicle in broad daylight might be responsible for shooting other men in vehicles, such as, you know, Doug Johnston, or um, I guess he wasn't in the vehicle, but Chuck Morgan is another example. He was near his vehicle. Mm -hmm. Uh, I do. However, I don't think it was specifically Licavoli who would have done it. He may have hired someone at that point, because by then he was getting older Uh, He was dealing with cancer in his last few years. Uh, He died from a heart problem in January 1984 at the age of 81. In his obituary, a senator, a fucking senator, which for some reason I was like, why are you giving quotes for an obituary for a mob boss? Anyhow, uh, he described Licavoli as, quote, one of the most cold-blooded and contemptuous characters to appear before our committee. Even that, I love that someone's like, "That's going in the files." He'd want or, that in it. He'd want that in there. Right. Put it in. Right. Like that's yeah, that feels right because if I want anything in my obituary, <laughs> it's one of our five star reviews. <laughs> <laughs> I was just gonna um, say I wouldn't mind something from an ex lover saying <laughs> saying <laughs> what I like is you, you're like. Something something lovely and personal into the heart. I'm like, give me the review. Oh, no. I didn't mean lovely into the heart. I meant she gave a great blowy. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for blowing. You're very welcome. I'd also retire. like a five-star review in there, though. That, that would be nice, too. Yeah. Look, uh, maybe this is just something we have to uh, work out in advance. I'm not sure. Look. Anyhow. Maybe we should be writing these for ourselves ahead of time. Look, we just write something nice and stick it in a spot. And then it's like, on go day. On go day. What? Well, on the contrary, it's actually stop day. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just assume it means we're going elsewhere. Oh, but, sure. Uh, mm-hmm. Oh, Lord. So, uh, I have one final mob guy. Oh, please. I'm going to mention, uh, not because I think he's involved specifically, um, but I'm out, like I'm outright convinced this guy is not involved in this specific case. But I wanted to mention him just to give you an idea of what mob guys in Arizona <laughs> were capable of. Oh boy. I suppose. Okay. So we've got a man named Salvatore Gravano, aka Sammy the Bull. Which again, fucking I, you know I love that. Yep. Uh, he was part of the Colombo family in New York before conspiring to murder Gambino boss Paul Castellano in 1985. After Castellano's death, Sammy moves up the ranks and becomes the underboss of the Gambino crime family. Sammy then turned state's witness in the case against John Gotti, which included Sammy admitting to being involved in 19 different murders. Wowzer! But of course, because he's there giving testimony to put John Gotti away, we're just gonna shh, 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 shh. don't worry about those. 
<laughs> just close your eyes. Shh, don't worry. Go about to sleep. What, Go to yeah, sleep. Just don't worry about nineteen murders. It's fine. So Sammy's testimony helps convict John Gotti of five murders: conspiracy to commit murder, obstruction of justice, tax evasion, extortion, illegal gambling, and loan sharking. Gotti has sent was sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. Uh, he then died from throat cancer in June 2002 at the age of 61. But in exchange for his testimony, Sammy was placed in witness protection in Arizona. However, he voluntarily chose to leave it. And in February 2000, he was arrested on federal and state drug charges, along with his ex-wife and their two children. Sammy was sentenced to 20 years in New York and an additional 19 years for charges in Arizona. He was scheduled to be released in March 2019, but was paroled in September 2017. And something I never, never thought I'd say about a, uh, a mob guy. As of 2021, Sammy is living quietly back in Arizona, while working on his podcast called One Our Thing. Mm-hmm. His mm-hmm. podcast is is going to this day. Wonderful. So he's found a hobby. And I say good on him. And hey, hey, you know what, Sammy? Yeah. Um, I'll say it now. Uh, yeah, let's let's do an ad swap. <laughs> I just, it's just of all the, of all the times I've mentioned the mob, I never in my wildest dreams thought that I was going to finish it with, and now he has a podcast. Every time I think this story's going to zig, it sags. Oh, it It sure does. Trust me. Trust me. Uh, so while Sammy the Bull wasn't in the area at the time of Chuck Morgan's or Doug Johnston's murders, my point of mentioning him is that when the area became popular to mobsters, even the public might not have known who was living among them because that seemed to be where they sent their witness protection. I'll say it, goons, that they had to put into witness protection, which is terrifying. You know, Sammy was involved with 19 murders, allegedly. Yeah. Uh, and then he's just walking around freely under an assumed name. And back in the 70s, you're not exactly going to have the internet to be able to easily see his face and know who he is. Whereas when Banano moved in, <laughs> everybody knew who he was. But they were like, he moves in and I respect him for it. Whereas Sammy had to go buy something else. Right. And be somebody else, and you have no idea that your neighbor has murdered multiple people. Allegedly. Yeah. We don't know for sure. Well, uh, the idea just terrifies me. My point is, the gang activity in the area, there were so many mobsters in the area willing to do someone else's dirty work, plus I'm sure their own, whether it was murder or drug trafficking or money laundering. So the stuff that was going down there... I mean, it does not narrow down the potential possibilities of what happened with Chuck Morgan. Right. So do I think that the mob is connected to Chuck Morgan's death? Honestly, I do. 
I think he got in with some people that he didn't know how to say no to. Do I think the mob is connected in some way to the deaths of Doug Johnston and Danny Casalero? I do. I don't have any proof, because if I did, then their cases would have been solved by now. But to me, the mob was already infiltrating the area. Each of these victims were fairly easy targets, especially for a professional killer. But if it wasn't the mob, could it have been... Could any of these murders have been caused by people in positions of power? Maybe not specifically the mob, maybe just rich people. What kind of people? Here's an example. So Don Bowles was born July 10th, 1928 in New Jersey. After high school, Don followed in his father's footsteps and pursued a newspaper career. After a stint in the army during the Korean War, uh, Don joined the Associated Press as a sports editor. In 1962, he moved to Phoenix and joined the Arizona Republic newspaper, where he came to be known for his coverage on organized crime in the area. In 1965, Don was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize for his investigation into bribery and irregularities in state law or in state tax and corporation commissions. In 1974, Don earned the Arizona Press Club Award for his series exposing conflict of interest scandals in the Arizona legislature. On May 27, 1976, Don received a phone call from a man claiming to have information about a land fraud deal involving then-Senator Barry Goldwater. Don agreed to meet with the man, despite it being very suspicious. On June 1st, the man called a second time, and they arranged to meet at the Clarendon, Ho- at the Clarendon House Hotel the following day. Don arrived for his 11.15 a.m. appointment and took a seat in the lobby. Within five minutes of his arrival, a man called the front desk asking to speak with Don. After a short call, Don headed for his Datsun, which was in the rear parking lot, and as he was driving away, an explosion ripped through his car. It blew out the windshield, it ripped off the car's four hubcaps, and shattered windows of nearby vehicles. The explosion also cut a two-foot hole in the floor beneath the driver's seat, blew open the driver's side door, and Don fell out and was discovered lying on the, on, uh, face down in the parking lot. So the first person to arrive on the scene was a refrigeration technician named Lonnie Reed. When he arrived, he said Don was saying, help me, help me. Don's legs had been shattered. The kneecap and part of the calf of his right leg had been blown off. So Lonnie used his belt as a tourniquet around Don's right thigh. Two minutes later, a fire captain arrived on scene. He said Don was trying to get up despite his serious injuries. Uh, Don told the captain, quote, They finally got me. The Mafia Emprise find John Adamson. Don was taken to St. Joseph's Hospital, where doctors amputated his right leg during a five-hour surgery. Don remained conscious, but was left in critical condition. But Don was convinced the mystery man that he was meeting with was 32-year-old John Harvey Adamson, a minor figure in the Phoenix underworld. While in high school, Adamson was a model student, a member of the school band, 
and the president of the school's Latin club. In 1973, Adamson started a tow truck operation in which he would chain cars to cement slabs in restaurant parking lots, and then the owners would pay him to remove the chains from their car. I mean, and maybe that's because Adamson was just the, he was known as the friendly neighborhood assassin. Oh, wow. So maybe that's why everybody just kind of went, oh, that's weird. Okay, here's money. Thanks. I'll take my car now. Who knows? But the day after the explosion, Adamson was arrested on an unrelated charge of defrauding an innkeeper. He was released on $100 bail. He was arrested a second time days later for refusing to pay a $136 bill he had accumulated at the Clarendon House Hotel. Once again, Adamson was released on bail. Over the next several days, while he's in and out of jail, Don received multiple blood transfusions and his right arm was amputated. A Phoenix attorney named Neil Roberts, claimed that Adamson was with him 15 minutes before the explosion, so he couldn't have had anything to do with it. They were meeting at Robert's office, which was five minutes away from where the explosion took place, so that even feels like saying, well, there's no way he was with me 15 minutes before, and my office is five minutes away. It's like, I can do math, Neil. (laughs) Anyhow... So Robert claims he remembers their meeting specifically because his secretary's watch stopped and she had to call the operator for the time. They claim she called at 11.18 a.m. Robert said after their meeting, he left the office. Adamson went one way. He went the other. He went to an airport. Um, He said Adamson didn't seem in a hurry. So to him, that meant, well, obviously he wasn't off to set off a bomb because he wasn't in a hurry. Mm-hmm. However, according to the receipt for Robert's luggage, it was logged in at the airport at 11.10 a.m., which means Robert's left his office easily 10.45, if not earlier, which means Adamson had more than enough time to set off the explosion. Roberts, of course, claims that it was a clerical error, but in reality, he was just a liar who got caught. Mm-hmm. Also, fun fact, Adamson claims that Roberts once paid him $50,000 to blow up a building that Roberts owned so Roberts could collect the insurance money. Yeah. Okay. Uh, When police searched Adamson's apartment on June 5th, they found firecrackers, electrical wire, tape, magnets, and a copy of the anarchist's cookbook. Oh, classic tale. Five days later, doctors had to amputate Don's left leg, and now he suffered from pneumonia. After days of suffering, Don passed away on June 13th at the age of 47. Two hours after his death, John Adamson was arrested and charged with his murder. Adamson pleaded not guilty. All right, so. Trial comes up for John Adamson. Yes. In the trial, there's a witness, an ex-con named Robert, who said that five days before the bombing, he and Adamson had driven to the parking lot of the Arizona Republic, the newspaper where Don worked. Uh, They went looking for Don's car. Robert said, quote, 
Adamson mentioned he had a job to do. He said he was going to blow up a car, and the reason he was going to the parking lot uh, was to see if the car would be there. He was going to blow up uh, Bull's car because, quote, some people don't like this guy. Robert claimed that Adamson said he was going to be paid $10,000 for the job and that he'd give Robert 10% if he helped do some recon. Robert refused. Although he did witness Adamson going to a dealership to look under the hood of a newer model Datsun, because that was very, very similar to what Don owned at the time. And I know what you're thinking. Robert is some random witness. How close was he and Adamson really? Well, three days after the bombing, Robert got married and Adamson was his best man. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, so I guess they were fairly close. I also just can't believe Adamson put a bomb in an innocent man's car and then just went about his life like attending weddings and giving wedding toasts, which is yeah. bizarre to me. Uh, Adamson eventually pleaded guilty to second degree murder, but the story just kind of continues to get crazier from here. So hold on to your hats because this is where things start to get a bit confusing. Okay. Adamson admits to planting the bomb in Don's car. He claimed that James Robison, a.k.a. Jimmy the Plumber, was the actual person who detonated the device with a radio transmitter, which is normally used for remote control model airplanes. Adamson claimed that Don's murder was a hit ordered by a Phoenix contractor named Max Dunlap, who ordered the hit as a favor for his mentor, a wealthy rancher and liquor wholesaler named Kemper Marley. And not to make light, but Kemper Marley is easily the best bad guy name I've ever heard. His picture is like a headshot of a bad guy in an 80s movie. Like, it all absolutely checks out. So why would Dunlap have Don killed? Well, allegedly, Marley was often the target of Don's stories about corruption in and around Arizona. And if... and these stories got Marley pushed out of the state racing commission, which was humiliating to him, and he wanted revenge. It was as simple as that, that a straight white dude wanted revenge. Yep. Adamson testified against both Dunlap and Robison. Uh, both men were convicted of first-degree murder. However, their convictions were overturned the following year. When they were up for retrial, Adamson refused to testify a second time. And so somehow he was then blamed for everything and convicted of first-degree murder in 1980. Adamson was sentenced to the death penalty, but it was overturned by the Arizona Supreme Court. Whoa. And, be and because this story is just never-ending, in 1990, Adamson agreed to testify against Dunlap and Robeson again, Dunlap was found guilty of first-degree murder. Charges against Robeson were dismissed for some reason. Uh, for his testimony, Adamson was given a reduced sentence and released from prison in 1996. He was placed uh, in the Witness Protection Program and died in 2002 at the age of 58, 
in an undisclosed location. I bet he did. Mm-hmm. They even put him, once he agreed to testify, they put him in witness protection while he was still in prison. Wow. Yeah, so I assume they must have changed his name and moved him to another prison and then maybe given him another name when he got out or maybe kept the same. I'm not sure how that worked. Wow. Uh, but Robison served five years for his involvement in Don's death and was released in 1989. Dunlap died in prison in July 20, or 2009. Kemper Marley, again, that name feels so unreal. It can't be real, but somehow it is. Uh, he died in 1990. Adamson claimed that Marley offered to help him escape to Mexico, but Adamson refused. Police were unable to find any evidence linking Marley to uh, Don Bull's death, so he never had any sort of charges against him in any way. For that, anyway. Mm. So as wild as it was, and at times as confusing as that story was, it goes to show what can happen to a person simply because a rich man chose his fate allegedly. And while it was a great example of a man with too much power, it was also a great example of the potential mob ties in Arizona at the time. And while not everyone involved in Don Bull's case did any jail time, the majority did, and his case is considered to be closed. After Don's death, the investigative reporters and editors board continued Don's work in exposing corruption and organized crime in Arizona. The team, consisting of 38 journalists from 28 different TV stations and newspapers, produced a 23-part series called The Arizona Project. It was the first large-scale implementation of collaborative journalism. The goal of The Arizona Project was to uncover corrupt relationships between politics, business, and organized crime within the state of Arizona. It shared names and stories involved in land fraud, corruption, and organized crime within the state. The project was published nationwide. However, the New York Times and the Washington Post chose not to run the series. Interesting. I, I find fascinating. Is there a reason that New York and D.C. wouldn't want any anti-organized crime articles to be published in their papers? Seems suspicious, almost like those places knew who controlled them at the time, allegedly. Mm-hmm. On the 40th anniversary of the project, the Don Bowles Award was established. It recognizes investigative journalists who have exhibited extraordinary courage in standing up against intimidation or efforts to suppress the truth about matters of public importance. So after all of that, was the mob somehow, I'm all back to this, involved in the deaths of Chuck Morgan, Doug Johnston, and Danny Casalero? I wouldn't, it wouldn't be the first time that we've seen the mob shoot someone in the back of the head and leave the body out in the open. Uh, also isn't the first time that they would make a death look like a suicide. So I think it's absolutely possible. But it's also possible that there was some high-ranking government involved there somehow. Chuck first went missing just one month after allegedly being a secret witness for a Treasury Department uh, in, the in a land fraud case. So was the case bigger than that and Chuck had become some sort of liability? Or did Chuck get himself in too deep and his paranoia got him killed? 
After nearly 50 years, it's unlikely we'll ever get answers at this point, because whoever committed these crimes and whoever ordered them to be done have all likely passed by now. And once again in this case, I am stuck with more questions than I had when I started. To this day, Chuck's daughters all believe that their father was murdered. Sadly, Chuck's wife Ruth died from cancer in May 2006 at the age of 73. As of October 2022, the cases of Charles Morgan, Doug Johnston, and Danny Casalero all remain unsolved. My brain has been on fire this week due to physical illness, but I didn't expect this case to somehow evolve into what it did. I thought I was getting into the case of a murdered escrow agent, and somehow that led to me translating Spanish, reading through Bible verses, tracing maps, looking into the mob, and the Freemasons? I don't know how we got here, but here we are. And God, what a ride it's been. So thank you, everyone, for taking this journey with me. Reporting for True Crime and Cocktails, <laughs> I'm a mess. <laughs> <laughs> You're our mess. You're our ah. mess. Well, listen, uh, let's take one last break, grab one more drink, hit the can one more time, and we'll be right back with our final thoughts on the Charles Chuck Morgan case and obviously so much more on this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. Of course, we are discussing the case of Charles Chuck Morgan, this took wild turns. It did. And I'm here it for it. I'm really here for it. Honestly, yeah. this is such a different, yeah, the, the Bible situation. Okay, I've got lots of thoughts. I, I'm just going to get into it. I'm going to go back to the very beginning. Let's start the very beginning. beginning. Um, so him coming home, hands zip-tied, missing a shoe with a plastic handcuff Around one ankle or one foot. Yes. He said his throat had been painted with a psychedelic. Yeah. He had to be nursed back to health. He said he'd been secretly working for the government and they took his treasury ID. Let's go back to this for a second. <laughs> oh, yeah. Because if that's all there was to this case, that's already insane. It's already insane. Yeah. And I'm going to say something that is going to shock you. I don't sure. know if I think the mob was behind that. Because if it's the mob, uh, I sure. I feel, and I say this to any potential 
mob members listening, uh, mm -hmm. we, mm -hmm. we, we respect you. We respect you. You do you, you do you. We do us, you yeah. do you. We're not, we're not criticizing you. You, you, you do what you're going to do and we're just, not. I just want to be honorarily in the family, not legitimately. Exactly. Um, but I feel like, and I say this honestly with respect, uh, if the mob's involved, they're going to kill him. They're not, he's yes. not going to escape in zip ties with a plastic handcuff. That, see, that's my, that immediately sticks out to me because I'm like, the the description we're getting is specifically from his wife. And bless her, I don't know what she would have known. Of, she knew enough of zip ties for his hands, but I was like, it was just a plastic handcuff? Part of me was like, do you mean it was a zip tie on his ankle? Like, I don't know. The, but also, the wording of plastic handcuff was like, okay. Also, not to be a nitpicker here, but like, were yes. zip ties super well known in the 70s? I don't think so. To serial killers, I'm sure. Yeah. But I, yeah, I mean, in my youth, I like as I was not around in the 70s. To be clear, I love that I took that so seriously. Um, in As a kid, I could not possibly have, like, I don't think I ever heard the word zip tie. Same. As a child. I'm going to throw, so, I'm going to throw out a couple things right now. Sure. Just speculating because, again, listen, sky's the limit when it comes to this. Uh, of course. Old green eyes there. Green eyes. Oh. First yeah. of all, I'm like, what's her role in all of this? We just assume that she's innocent. She's the one calling the wife, you know, right? after he was abducted the second time. How do we know she didn't kill him? We don't, right? right? We don't. No. Um, why Why were they meeting at all? What? Well, who is she? This is yeah. what I'm going to come back to. Is it possible this first meeting, because we don't know who she is. Right. This first meeting was of the sexual persuasion. Is sure. it possible it has absolutely no connection to any of this? And I know usually the, the simplest sure. explanation is true. I say that on this show all the time. With this, I'm going, <laughs> we're going out to left field mm -hmm. because nothing's simple in this case. But sure. is it possible that he meets up with a gal, God knows how they know each other. Somehow they've met in some way, who knows. But they meet up for some sort of interaction. I was going to say relations. Thank yeah. you very much. And he, they do drugs or, or something of the sort, or they get too drunk or they do something. Is that why there was a zip tie? Is that why there was a plastic handcuff? Do you see what I'm saying? Like, it's like, was it basically like this kind of tryst or fling that kind of sure. went awry and he did too many drugs or, or passed out or something. And he's come home with, partial of a story that's true we know he was testifying potentially in that case yeah but in his kind of altered state was he kind of giving information that wasn't fully correct to his wife in that moment you know his throat had been painted with a drug i don't know if that's a thing is it possible that this woman did give him some sort of drug in that way i, I don't know again I'm, I'm speculating all over the place here um because is it then possible again? Because how long was he missing for the first time? Two days? Three days, yeah. That feels to me like it could be, again, a drug bender, 
something sure. something that's just gone awry. Again, because in the grand scheme, it does stick out to me as like it doesn't match the rest of this. Right. So then nine days later, we know, and again, I'm speculating that he was with Green Eyes that first time, but nine days later, we know that he was with her because she called Ruth and she admitted to calling Ruth. Yes. So unless she's some sort of double agent who's taking credit for calling Ruth when she didn't, we're going to assume that that's true. So we also know that he wasn't dead at that point. Right. Is it possible that there are two things going on at the same time, which are he was having some kind of affair the first time, whatever, they were experimenting with drugs or God knows what. It went a little bit awry. He came home three days later. You know, she got he got nursed back to health from what could have just been a, as simple as a drug overdose. We don't know. Sure. Nine days after that, or, or he then he goes missing a second time. Nine days later, he gets a call from this woman saying he's okay. She's quoting this Bible passage. But then it was two days after that that he was found dead. And we know at that point he had only been dead for 12 hours. So is it possible yeah. That he had kind of just decided to run off with this other woman. Potentially he was trying to, in in some sense, save his family because he was paranoid. He was worried that the mob or the government or whoever was after him. You know what I mean? Like, is it that there was something else going yeah. on entirely, which was that he was with this other woman? Was she then connected? Was she a double agent? Was she working for whoever ended up killing him? So he thought that she was a, a lover, affair, whatever, Sure. When in reality, she was also working for the other working side. Working the other side. Yeah. Because the, the other piece of this that doesn't add up to me, the other bogey from, thank you, the MO, is the clue that was pinned inside his underwear. So to yeah. me, it's like either, well, and the fact that there was residue on, gun, gunshot residue on his hands, which we know was not the case in one of the, in the other gunshot murder. Um I'm speculating that it's a murder, but come on. Um, right. Because was it him that put that clue in his underwear? Was it her? She's the one that quoted yeah. the Bible on the phone. So is it possible True. that we, is it possible that that whole thing was a red herring on her part? Where this is, you know, maybe she isn't involved in any of this. Is that also possible? That she's just a woman that he's having an affair with Sure. I don't know. He's She's given that to him for protection or something when she's not around. I don't know. It just feels like there is a, there is, she is a key to this. The fact that she went to the police, she said, oh, he had this money to pay off this gang. She admitted to calling Ruth. Again, it sounds to me like they were just lovers or, or sure. friends or whatever, like, you know? Yeah. I mean, if she had something to do with that dollar bill, then she would be connected to every time the Bible thing came up. Right. And of course, you know, I'm like, can I see all the Bibles in your home? Yeah, exactly. And then I want to see, like, do they only have the one? Because I want to read, like, all the letters down a side or something, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like there's there's something. Yeah. I don't know. The fact that one of his teeth was in the back, that feels oh, mob mob like to me that they Sure. But then why would they leave the tooth? 
I, uh, none of it makes sense. None of it makes sense. It is confounding because it's like every time you start to go one way, you're right. Every time you zig, they zag. Like it's, I don't know. The fact, it does also feel like, it just feels like there's more than one thing happening, if that makes sense. Like it feels like he was in the middle of a couple of things is what it seems like to me. Because if if this was just about this land fraud situation, well, that doesn't feel connected to the money and the, like the money situation, it feels like could, would be more connected to this drug situation because of the map connecting Tucson and the Mexican border, which we know was that, that drug pipeline. So like, you know what I'm saying? Like it's, it's again, yeah. and then, yeah. Again, I, I can see why you felt like your brain was was uh, melting because <laughs> I already feel like mine is and I've only been in this for, you know, two hours. Um, again, then you brought in the, the Freemason. And then I just wrote down in my notes again, is Green Eyes involved in this? Like, why was it that just that that woman, like, well, she went to the police and they never investigated her? Well, that's the thing. I, like, she has to be involved somehow. She has to be. Because if, why call his wife at all? Well, well, arguably, as far as we know, she was the last person to see him alive. Yeah. So that feels to me like that would have warranted an interview. But then we also know that there was police that said it was maybe a murder and then they all left and some of them left the country. So it seems to me like maybe there was a another layer of not being interested in investigating in that way. Um, sure. This whole turn about it being on Unsolved Mysteries and then this reporter, Don Devereaux, and and then someone else getting murdered, Doug Johnston getting murdered when it feels like it was, and then, and then the corroboration that, no, that was meant for you. That's just, yeah. that's why I feel like there's something, there's another layer here. Because it's like, if this sure. was just about land fraud or this was just about drugs is that enough for there to be for not only chuck to be murdered but then a reporter who's researching this years later when by the way the police are also like we got you we're not going to investigate this there's something much to me it's like there's there's something much bigger going on It, it just feels like why why again why why would there be so i mean again like i just feel like I don't know. Those two things just feel like small potatoes for the mob. Unless yeah. it was something that was blowing up absolutely everything. But then it just feels like, I mean, maybe maybe Chuck really did have that power with, with running that escrow agency. I don't know. True. Unless. But it just, to your point, it just feels, if even the cops are willing to be like, no, no, he did it himself. We're good then like that's your sign if even cops are like we're good unless again it's the calls coming from inside the house that this is one of the times that that the mobs like oh no that that one actually wasn't us <laughs> right like sure. unless it's because again how did the CIA know that this hit was out on him how how deep is the CIA in this cuz if the CIA knew that there was a hit out on on uh, Don Devereaux. You would think they should know if there was a hit out on, on Chuck. Right. 
And yeah. why would they not try and stop it? Or I guess maybe they could have found out after the fact, but you see where I'm going with this. Yeah. It just feels like, again, that there's a reason why everyone's just going, we're going to close the book and walk away. There's something. There's something. It's Yeah. It just feels like there's something, again... And the fact, too, that then, again, this other guy, Danny Casalero, is asking for... I also... What what I find most shocking is that this Don Devereaux character is just, like, trusting Danny, this out-of-nowhere freelance journalist that's like, hey, can I get some information? And he's like, sure, man. And then, well, he was right to trust him because, very sadly, then Danny shows up dead. You know what I mean? But it's like, that could have been someone coming to kill you, Don. You already know there was a hit out on you. And then oh, he has the, the guts to go on TV again. I mean, again, good on you, because I would absolutely not. At that point, I'd just be like, I'm I'm going into the underground. Thank you. Good night. Bye. Oh, <laughs> oh yeah. I'm I'm done this case. Oh, 100%. But again, it just feels like also knowing that Danny was, was investigating this, like, government computer program. I mean, now we're starting to get into the unsolved mystery, the Washington insider murder. Yeah. Where it's like, could be nothing, could be everything. Yeah, and we'll never know. It's at this point. Oh no! Because yeah. whoever, whoever, which there has to be so many people linked to all of this. Yeah, I don't think just one single person knows, but so many people linked, and there have to be like so many of them are probably dead by now. Oh yeah. But again, which is it, horrifying. It always but. makes me. I'm always curious about, you know, what are the stakes for people. Right? Because, again, with the mob, we understand, (laughs) for the most part, we understand mob rules, right? It's like mob rules are, they protect their assets and they don't like no snitches and, but you know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Like, it's like, we get, we understand that it's like, if you do this, then we will kill you. Like, it's black and white. Yeah. But with this... It's just so hard to know because we also don't know. We know about the money laundering and yep. we know about the fact that there was a, a lot of money that was being made up and all of the above. So, again, that does feel like it could impact. I don't know why. You'll love this. I don't know why. I just, my gut is like, could it be the mob? Of course. Do I feel like this is bigger than that? I don't know. There's part of me that does. And now I know like I sound like Fox Mulder, but it just feels like, I don't know. It's too creepy to me. It feels too... Way too creepy to me. Um, again, just the, the 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 depths and the the willingness of yeah. going to the reporter and then going to the the next one, like, yeah. But then I also just again, there is also the difference again in terms of of Chuck's murder. There was the gunshot residue on his hand, even though I don't really believe that people kill themselves by putting a gun to the back of their head. I think that that's not yeah. a typical choice. Um, but then there wasn't in the case of, of Doug Johnston. He was shot in the back right. of the head, but there was no gunshot residue on his hands. Right. And there was no and gun. no gun. We know that it was Chuck's own gun that killed him. Yes. Um, and then again, the MO changes again with, with Danny Casalaro because it was, again, it was a, that was definitely, if it was a murder, it was definitely made to look like a suicide. Sure. So... Yeah. 
I don't know. And again, the fact that the CIA was like, yeah, we knew. Or we or we now know. Mm-hmm. I know. It's very creepy to me. It's very creepy. And just the fact also that we knew he was a secret witness for this Treasury Department land fraud thing. Right. You know, it's like, well, who was that against? Who was that? Was it what we know of or was it something else? I mean, you know, there is in like a, a every stone unturned sort of situation. Is it possible that Chuck went out to the desert because he was going to meet somebody about something? He, maybe he was going to pay someone off. He could have paid someone off. He could have given the guy the money and been like, hey, here you go. I'm backing out. Killer took the money and went, easiest money I've ever made done they leave and in his paranoia chuck has the gun the gun drops and it goes off and that's why there's on his hands because he was he was playing around or he was holding the gun in some sort of a way he was nervous whatever it fell and it hit at a certain way that he somehow but these got shot these are the head but the odds of that but these are the kinds of, I mean, this is, listen, this is why we would be great detectives. Because these are the things we'd be running. Ballistics on the gun. How many times has that yeah. gun been shot? Yeah. Right? Is it possible that he shot the gun and then the gun shot again? You know what I mean? Like, like it, these are the things which I'm yeah. sure, like, what about the autopsy report? To your point. Uh, not, yeah, is it, is, does it feel implausible? Sure, but not impossible. It's absolutely possible that the gun falls, goes off, and can hit him in the back of the head. Absolutely possible. We know he was yeah. right by a vehicle. It could have ricocheted. That's sure. So again, <laughs> then let's see the, let's show us the autopsy report. But I'm sure there wasn't one. Probably not. And again, it's it's when, it's when there's that. It's when there's like, it was a suicide, was it? It was a suicide. That's when I go like, yeah. and okay, we're just, then we're just, okay. We're going to just back out and close the door and close the book and turn off the light and, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and pretend nothing ever happened. Um, yeah. Because, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, I think, but, but again, great point. That's also a real possibility. It's just, it's never ending. Because you're like, which way, there are so many ways this branches off. So it's like, which way do you follow and then how far do you get down that path before you're like, oh, I was on the right path, but then I kind of went the wrong way. And so then it's like, oh, shit. So if I take two steps back, start down that first path, but then go this way, am I getting closer? And it's like that note, if that note hadn't existed, then this would be something, it would still be weird and there would still be a lot of layers to it that are like, what's happening there? It's that, it's that damn bill. It's the writing on it. It's why did you have it pinned? It, what do the names mean? Why are they seven? Is it, are they, is it sevens because of Freemason? Are you a Freemason? Is that involved somehow? And is that the bigger, is that what it is? Is this all the Freemasons? Do they have all the power in the world where they're making all of it? Because the Freemasons, by the way, anybody can be a Freemason. Yeah. 
And again, if they're listening, uh, you do your thing. We're doing ours. We're not going to look into this further. Yeah. Uh, you know what? No. You, you do, again. No, um, after this. Close. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Done. Um, it was so long ago anyway. Uh, but you know what I'm saying? Like, it's like, then we start, but then, you know, then there's something interesting there too, because again, that's, that's something where there could be people in multiple different professions in multiple different locations. Yeah. There's, there's, I mean, that's interesting too. The last thing that I wanted to bring up though, about, about Chuck and, and again, the question marks was the car that had the button that it would, that it would open if you, you yeah. hit the fender. Yeah. And it was that the door would open. Yeah. And this was his personal car. Yeah. What's that? Oh, I know. Because, because again, it makes, it feels like there's something else. It just feels like it's like, were you just a secret testimony, testimonial, or were you, were you working for the CIA? Were you, do you know what I mean? Like, it's like, what's the other layer to this? Because, yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Are those cars common? I just don't feel like that's... I Oh, no. That was obviously... Like, that was some sort of modification that... Could he have done that himself? Would he have needed to have someone do that work for him? How difficult is that to do? Like, there's so many questions. And it's like, why... Why does this have to keep adding stuff? Well... <laughs> you know, like... Because it's just... Like, so many of these things, I felt like I had made up. Because by the end of it, I was like, oh, this, this is something I dreamt because this is all, this, this is, has, it went from a normal case and then just went sideways. And I've double checked everything and it's like, oh no, 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 that's all, that's all real. <laughs> it's just, how is this possible? There's something to be said about the fact that so many cops involved in this were like, hey, now, this is, we're good. We're good. And they they have bowed out or just been like, well, obviously, obviously it looks like a suicide to us. And listen, that could be mob pressure. That could be yeah. governmental pressure. That could be Freemasons. There's still no answer, right? Like it's like nope. there's still no answer. Or, or the fourth option, which is the bigger thing that we don't know about, where it's like, is there some other thing at play? Which almost feels yeah. possible to me because at this point it just feels so mysterious yeah it's never ending well it's gonna haunt my nightmares i'll tell you that much but um yeah nonetheless uh christy oxborough yeah. fabulous work as always i mean this one really is fascinating to me because i feel like right it's a snake eating its tail constantly yeah because you never know what's what's the right path to go down to start nope like do you do you take anything seriously from that bill? Do you focus on the numbers? Do you focus on the names? Do you focus on the map? <laughs> what do you do? And the answer is, I don't know anymore. Yeah. I just don't. Yeah. I don't. Listen, and we probably never will, but uh, nonetheless, I think it's thought-provoking, truly a head-scratcher, uh, and fantastically researched as always. I expect nothing less. You are too kind. Listen, I, I speak the truth. And thank you, dear listeners, for listening to this episode of the show. We are so appreciative of your support. And we wanted to take a quick minute before we wrap things up and just give our support 
obviously to uh, everyone in Florida, obviously there is a massive hurricane um, that at the time of this recording uh, has just begun in the state of Florida. Hurricane Ian, I believe, is uh, what we're dealing with. Uh, Yes. Um, Obviously, these is natural disasters are terrifying and beyond uh, disastrous, which is a massive understatement. Um, but we obviously send all of our very best to everyone. Please stay safe as best you can. And, and again, this is at the time of this recording, it has just begun. And uh, we, we pray and hope that it's not going to be as disastrous as what we've seen in the past. Yeah. So to everyone in Florida, please stay safe as best you can. Um, and to everyone else for lis- who's listening, thank you so much for listening, as always. If you haven't already, give us a follow on the socials on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, at True Crime and Cocktails, on Twitter, at Not Detectives. Uh, again, we're over on Patreon at patreon.com slash True Crime and Cocktails. And the only place for True Crew, uh, a True Crime and Cocktails merch, is truecrewmerch.com, so check that out as well, if you haven't already. Christy, do you want to tell the people about next week's episode? Right. Uh, sure. We never did give it a name. I like what you have written down. (laughs) Okay. Okay. On the next episode of True Crime and Cocktails, episode 100, Anniversary Extravaganza. That's right, dear (laughs) listeners. It's been a hundred episodes. This was episode 99. 99 year balloons. 99 episodes of True Crime and Cocktails. Next week is episode 100. It's going to be a whole lot of fun. I don't know what we've yeah. got planned. I don't know if you Neither have. do I. Yeah, we don't know. But we're going to think Look, of something. We, we got stuff. We got stuff. Uh, no, uh, we have stuff. We'll we, have, we have questions from, from listeners. Yes, we did reach out. We put a call out for yes. questions to put bring in some question and answer time. We might sprinkle in some other goodies. Who knows? Who knows? But you never know what you're going to get. Like a box of chocolates. Yeah. Um, but listen, I am of the belief that it is always very important to celebrate milestones, to celebrate, uh, you know, any sort of markers in life. And so it's going to be very fun to celebrate that with all of you. Um, and we wouldn't be here without all of you. So we hope you will join us for that. Christy, do you want to say goodnight to the people? Good night, Laura Dern. Good night, Chris Pine. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Allow your imagination to be piqued by stories that are brought to life through captivating sound design, eerie soundscapes, and dynamic performances. As an Audible member, you'll be able to keep your heart rate up month after month because you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. If you're in the mood for a shocking psychological thriller, check out None of This is True by Lisa Jewell. Embrace brand new exclusive thrillers from bestselling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. That's audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500.